Podcast 50, Toby Hemingway on Animal Problems and Solutions. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. Don't be You're welcome to I'm, I'm, I'm saying that it's already recording. Yes. <laughs> so uh, uh, we're here with uh, a bunch of folks, including Toby Hemingway. And so this is this is the great summoning. So I've I was I was summoned, and so we made a road trip. And we did, we thought we were going to make a podcast on the road, but that didn't happen. Um, I remember I remember. Um, we we had a lot of passionate discussion. At least I was getting passionate about a couple of things. <laughs> On the way over here, we talked about so many different things. So I think everybody here is bonkers about permaculture, but is there anybody here who is not taking a PDC? You guys haven't taken a PDC. All right. So I'm just going to go around real quick. So it's me, Paul. Caleb. Krista. Toby. Kelly. Derek. So, um... Uh, as long as we're here with Toby and Wayne, now, of course, I, I, you know, if anybody's been listening to my podcast regularly, we've already got five chapters of Gaia's Garden done, and um, and so, Toby, you sent me an email after we did the very first one, and and your comment was that you know, hey, get the second edition, and um, uh, and I didn't get the, I, I'm electing to not get the second edition. Uh, because I feel like I've got I've got enough information, and especially because you know and I like the comparative thing that we're doing. But mostly, I think it's awesome that this really excellent information that was in the book 11 years ago was you know it, it shows that hey, this was around 11 years ago. It's not like this is only two years old. So I, I'm I've been and so we've got two of the reviewers have the new edition, and I've got the old edition, but. Anyway, and, and so you've listened to some of the podcasts in that space, and, and uh, um, tolerable, you know, a tolerable review. Uh, have we been missing something? Have we left anything out? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I've only listened to bits and pieces of the podcast. I actually don't have the attention span to listen to full podcasts all the way through. So I used to just read bits and pieces of your book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. I mean, actually, one of the nicest things someone ever said about the book was that it's a fractal book. You can read a chapter or a section or a paragraph or a sentence and still get something out of it. So yeah, it's fine to just read it in bits and pieces. I, I have no problem with that. So, um... <clears throat> One of the things that's not in your book, and it, and you've got a bunch of articles out, and I th- I think it'd be great to talk about some of your articles too. Um, but something that you wrote to uh, Lawrence London's permaculture mailing list, I believe it was about seven years ago, maybe it was six years ago, seven years ago, and it was about deer control. Now you you used to live urban, no, you used to live rural. Then you went and did the urban thing, and now you've kind of been released from both of those, and you can pick and choose as you go along, spreading. You're like Johnny Appleseed, sort of. You're, you're taking the more of the, the Johnny Appleseed approach to permaculture these days. Okay. Yeah, a little, little bit more nomadic, a little bit more spreading seeds wherever you go, uh, mending the world as, as you right. pass. You can fix the world one, one city at a time. There, there you go. All right. So, um, But one of the questions that came up is somebody was asking about how do you keep deer out of your stuff. Right. And you wrote 
basically a reply to this in the mailing list, and um, I'm, I'm sure if somebody, you know, uh, fired up Google, they could find your re- your your reply. But um, uh, I thought that uh, um, it was very thorough. And that while your book talks a little bit about um, uh, different kinds of things you can plant that would sort of feed some of the deer and then be thorniness, so that way they might be discouraged. Um, you, you, I think the best part was is that you started talking about deer pressure. Mm-hmm. So, okay, now I want you to recite what you wrote seven years seven ago, years ago yeah, from memory. Exactly. Verbatim. Yeah. Okay. Ready? Go. Dear, dear Lauren, <laughs> no, uh, I, really what I was trying to do was just give a permacultural approach to deer, which is not that there's one technique that's best uh, or anything like that, but it's just you. It's a set of strategies. And so we think about, all right, how do deer behave? What are they attracted to? What don't they like? And I think one of the things I try to do is start with the minimally invasive first. Like, we really didn't want to go to the eight-foot deer fence around the entire property, that sort of thing. And that's, that's pretty reliable, but we just we didn't want to live in a concentration camp. So we tried lots of different things. We tried stringing fishing lines from place to place because deer can't see the fishing line, so the roses poke into it, they freak out. So then we tried hanging life buoy soap because there are certain fragrant soaps they really don't like. I tried peeing lots of places just to see if that worked. Did you try putting up signs that say no deer allowed? <laughs> <laughs> that got the college professor deer, but the dumb deer really, they just went right through it. <laughs> but a lot of what we tried was where are the deer coming from and then concentrate our efforts. You know, there was a particular part of the hill that the deer would always come up. There were trails. And so we, we tried putting up fencing, fishing line, shrubs that they would like to eat. We planted some stuff like Osage orange with gooseberries underneath it to form an impenetrable thorny barrier just in the direction that the deer were coming from. And that that would kind of deflect them. But the the deal with most of those techniques, at least as far as the fishing line and the soap and the peeing and all of that, is that the the deer get habituated to it. Eventually they learn that it's not going to kill them, but and there's food behind it, so the food wins out. They're just gonna, they're gonna go after it. Actually, one of the most effective non-fence or non-non-invasive, I guess you'd call it, techniques I saw was someone who set up a motion detector with a small fan, and then they got one of those um, inflatable ghostly figures that you see in used car lots, <laughs> and it had some little whistles to it, so that whenever a deer came by, it would trigger this thing, and this this huge phantom would erect and go, waving its arms back and forth. And the deer Buy never. used cars! <laughs> Buy used cars! It's going to scare a deer off. So, so that, it worked. It was, it was beautiful. It worked, and it was fun to see. But what we found was a lot of these things would be effective for a while, and then the deer would get used to it. And one of the things that changed things was a new neighbor moved in, and he decided to start feeding the cute little deer. And he was down the road from us, and so suddenly the deer were no longer coming up the hill. They were coming from down the road, and we didn't have any protection from down the road. I tried the two four-foot fences about five feet apart. That's one technique that people recommend because deer can jump high, but they can't jump broad. 
So if you put two low fences five feet apart, the deer supposedly can't jump across it. And that worked for a pretty long time until one buck figured out that if you jump in from the corner diagonally, you can get in the center, and then you can jump the second fence really easily. And then he taught it to all the rest of the deer. So just real quick, the, the gap is supposed to be about three to four feet between the two fences. Um, and so five feet, this is the first I've ever heard of anybody trying five, a five-foot gap. Um, and then my understanding is is that the, it's, it's a psychological barrier in the effect that um, the deer can detect that there is a certain kind of depth there, but their depth perception is aw- aw- awful because their eyeballs are on the sides of their head. And so then they're, they're like looking at it, and it's like, I don't think I can do this. Yeah, they don't know how far to jump, and they're just not good broad jumpers. They're good high jumpers. So jumping, you know, six or seven feet across is not something that they like to do. So we, at any rate, we tried all these different strategies, and as long as the deer were coming from a predictable direction, we could deal with it pretty well. We'd lose a little bit of stuff to deer, but not very much. The problem was when our neighbors started feeding the cute little deer the boxes of apples, and he even would teach them how to climb up onto his porch to eat apples. So now we've got deer clambering up onto our deck to eat the flowers that we've got in pots on our deck. Uh, and we find we actually did wind up doing the eight-foot deer fence, and we got a dog, and that was the complete end of all deer problems. But, but we were able to go about six or seven years before we had to get that serious about it. So if you're willing to accept some deer loss and make some offerings for the deer, the, the less invasive techniques can work pretty well. It's just it's a question of developing a set of strategies of where are the deer are coming from, what minimal stuff can you do to, to entice them to go somewhere else, uh, and, and offer them a little something so that they'll go somewhere else. But as soon as they learn that there's really good food inside something that is not that hard to get to, they're just, especially muleys, they're, they're aggressive. They're just going to knock down stuff and get in. So. so now about twice a month I get asked about how do you keep deer off your stuff. And my, my explanation always starts with, well, seven years ago, Toby Hemingway wrote. Now, and, and a big part of what um, impressed upon me that's locked into my head that I share with people, you know, twice a month is that, and then Toby Hemingway said, it, it works out like this. You have candy and food, and on the other side of the fence, or on the other side of whatever weird barrier you've made, is death and starvation. And so now, the, the deer are kind of like willing to try a lot more stuff. Right. They're willing, because it's like, you know, they might die in the process of getting to candy land, but it's like they're going to die if they don't. Yeah. So now it's it's like you you need and this is what the root of predator pressure if you're or in this case uh, deer pressure if your deer pressure is low then all these things peeing on stuff and whatever else putting up signs that say no deer allowed this stuff all <clears throat> can work um, and then uh, when it gets to the point of like I'm going to uh, maybe die if I don't overcome you know if I don't you know, get walked past the smell of Toby's pee, then um, uh, I, I think Toby's pee is not scaring me nearly as much as the specter of death and starvation. Yeah, exactly. So, and then your your summary was exactly what you just said. In the end, it's that eight foot tall fence. Yeah. Not you know everything yeah. else is all about lower deer pressure. Mm-hmm. But if you've got high deer pressure, it's that eight foot tall fence. Mm-hmm. Now I think, and, and just a moment ago we were talking about dogs. And it, and now my analysis is, and now I'd like to ask your question, if, ask the question of if this seems to work for you. 
I think that you can not you, you could choose a path without the eight foot tall fence, but you have to have dogs that love to chase deer, um, go after deer, and and they have to be able to do it 24-7. So, like, not dogs that you bring inside. An outdoor dog or a dog door for them to go through. Yeah, and again, you'd probably be needing, willing to accept a little bit of loss before the dog gets out there. You know, the dog might miss it occasionally, but yeah, I mean, just something like a little bit of netting around something plus a dog could probably help you a lot. The, the, the problem that develops is that eventually the deer will learn that the food is there, and moms will teach their babies, let me show you where the good stuff is, and that you can get away with it for a few years, usually before that happens. But once the deer know the food is there and they teach their young that the food is there, you, you have to escalate to, you know, to the next level of strategy. So now I think that, of course, if if you've got dogs that will actually take down a deer, and, and this, again, runs contrary. There's, there's different kinds of people that, that live in the country. Some people live in the country with the idea of, oh, look at the pretty deer. Right. And some people live in the country with the idea of, I'm going to try and be self-sustaining. I'm going to try and raise all my own food. And I'm going to try and maybe do some market farming or something like that. Uh, some people say that they want to do both, in which case they end up just looking at the pretty deer. Because right. I, I don't think you can do both. No, right. I think there's a lot of people that are sure they can have both. Mm-hmm. And I've yet to see an example of both working out. Yeah. Um, if you don't decide which side of the fence you're on, kind of the deer will decide for you. And they'll make that decision for you. And you wind up not being able to grow food. Same with almost any sort of wildlife. Is if you just decide, you know, we, I was living in Hawaii for a while and there were feral pigs there. And there was a big controversy on the farm that I was at between the, the pig lovers, basically, who would talk about, but the pigs are the dolphins of the forest. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I've never heard that before. Before. The dolphins of the forest. <laughs> of the forest. I mean, they're smart. You know, they're really smart animals. And you know, then there was a contingent of let's bring in the native Hawaiian hunter and shoot some of the pigs and have a luau, which has been the Hawaiian tradition for a long time. And no one could decide. They couldn't come to consensus, being an intentional community, on what to do. And the pigs made the decision for them. The pigs just rooted up all their gardens and you know, okay, you guys aren't going to grow food um, you know, until you decide what to do about the pigs. I just want to go on record. Record is saying that the dolphins of the forest make damn good eating. They do. <laughs> they're they're Oh yeah, wild wild pig. Oh boy, it's really good meat. You know, to me, the pigs are the venison of the forest. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the wolves are the sharks of the forest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I uh, um I think we've covered. Has anybody else got any more comments about deer stuff? What about the deer spray, the poo? I mean, that's the deer spray. It's an actual product. Right. I haven't used that. Speculate. Go for it. Right, I, speculate. I, I, I tried Zoo also, the predator poop from the zoo, and again, that works mm-hmm. for a little while, and then they learn there's not really a predator around. Anybody else? All right. You can mention the bone sauce, too. See, now that's what I was thinking. I was, I was going to wait to see if anybody else would have that one. Are you familiar with Sepp's bone sauce? Uh, I've just read read what he had to say about it, but I've never tried it. So, so it, it actually, uh, you can find it on Wikipedia, they talk about it, and it's called something like something or another oil. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think I think the uh, if there was a brand for it, it would be like damn nasty oil. Um, <laughs> I've, I, I have not yet made any. Now, Brian Kirkliet is going to make some, and I hope to go get that on video. But... Um, uh, from what I understand, it smells horrible. 
and that uh, if you if you go and you put it on your trees, um, it's like nothing will touch that tree. You can you can run goats in there, and the goats. What is it made from? Yeah, I've 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 written an article on it. Um, <clears throat> So basically, if somebody pisses you off, you chop them up into little pieces. Right, you, it's a homeopathic. You dose you carve away animal. all the meat. Right. I think you could eat them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, then then it's so basically it's the bones. You take the bones, right. um, and you're going to put it uh, into a, uh, a kettle. Uh, uh, and and Sep uses cast iron. I'm not sure if cast iron is an important ingredient or not. Um, but you'll have two cast iron kettles. And in the in the lower kettle, you'll put like uh, a cup of water or half a cup of water. And then in the top kettle, you're going to put the bones. You're going to have a screen between them. And then you're going to um, uh, pile a bunch of clay around the seam between the two kettles. And then you're going to build a fire on top of this pile. And you're going to let it burn for several hours and um, and then come back the next day. And then there's going to be this this damn nasty goo at the bottom of the, the, the lower kettle uh, and all the bones have turned to something wonky uh, they're no longer recognizable as bones um, and you take that goo and I think a little bit of goo will last you five, six years but you'll go because like right when you've got like a little tiny apple tree that's just like three feet tall then goats and deer and all kinds of things think that is like candy that is deliciousness and then you put this stuff on it, and it's like, um, I don't know, some people say it's like the smell of death. And um, and, you, and it's like you're not a carrion eater, you know, right. and so there's something fucked up with this tree. Bad things have happened here. Yeah. So yeah. It, there's, there's, there's an, it, it triggers some sort of instinct, and it's like there is something really bad about this tree. And then apparently the tree kind of absorbs it and carries that odor for like decades. Yeah. And then the uh, and then the tree gets to be an adult tree. Now the bark is thick enough that most stuff won't mess with it. So now now you're good. It's the baby trees where it's a problem. So uh, I kind of I, I think of that as like one way because like a lot of people go and they put all their trees into cages and stuff. And they've got these elaborate cages to keep the deer out. I've done that. I've done you know a hundred of these cages. And um, uh, this 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 goo just sounds like so much better. Now my only concern with it is that one of my primary rules of farming is that if it smells bad, you're doing it wrong. And my understanding is this stuff smells really bad. So in which case I'm, you know, thinking about, is this going to be an exception? I mean, so far I don't have right. any exceptions to the rule. Um, like like male goats. <laughs> Having male goats run, that's doing it wrong. Because <laughs> they smell so bad from 200 yards away. And there's one over there. You smell bad! <laughs> so, uh, Anyway, uh, I I think that this is, I mean, I've I've seen stuff with pigs and goats and all kinds of things and with these trees, and and they do fine. They leave them alone. So, I've heard of of folks grinding up gophers and roasting them to ashes and then sprinkling the ashes around to keep keep gophers out. Um, Actually, the other method I haven't tried yet is, is deer heads on steaks. You know, just around the area with your head on stakes to let them know this is not a nice place for deer. 
haven't killed enough deer to, to do that yet. It's a good medieval solution exactly. there. That's right. So now that was okay. So I did that video about the respectful harvest of a chicken, and you all seen that? Did you see that, Toby? Yeah. Yes, did you did see that, that one. one. Yep. You look at my video. I do. I okay, Toby. Them. Short enough, I look at him. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw the 43 minutes, it's like, hmm. I, I think the longest I've made is now 14 or 15 minutes, and that was part two of Respectful Harvest. Um, but uh, the one thing I did not put in the video is that she takes the little heads and she makes them like garden ornaments around and and she feels she feels like uh and she she said something about it like like uh it helps her to remember and that and to not forget to not try and put them out of her mind and that and that she feels like the heads are looking at her and saying um that they're making sure that she's doing a good job and so she's there's always somebody watching you making sure you're doing so speaking of putting things, you know, on a pike <laughs> or something, that was it's a very different reason for putting things on a pike, I right. suppose. Yeah, they do. It's the, the opposite side, and also to remember what the animals do for you. Right. Like and the hunts are mounting the heads on the wall. Right. Yeah. Well, and that and that there and that everything that you do all day long, you know, there are people watching. There's right. somebody watching. There's entity watching, and making sure that you do that which is good and right and decent. I, I thought uh, it was a. I, I think I would. Uh, not do that, but um, <laughs> I, I, I I thought it was very interesting that she did, and and she's done a lot of. I, I'm hoping to get a lot more video of her doing a lot of things. She's she's really awesome. But um, we talked. Voles and moles have come up, mm-hmm. and um, uh, for a lot of people, that uh, um, I mean, Recep. Uh, his, I think his approach is awesome, and it's like, and it kind of ties in with Mollison's thing. You don't have an excess of moles and voles; you have a deficiency of pigs. Yeah, exactly. Because usually, for any animal problem, the solution is another animal. You know, is generally what. Well, I mean, you can do a whole bunch of work yourself. Again, the sort of anti-permaculture principle is for you to stand there with a gun and for you to build fences and for you to set traps and for you to put out poison bait and all that sort of stuff. A dog or a cat would just love to do those jobs. And so, I mean, we had bull pressure at our place in Southern Oregon, and we brought our two city cats with them, and they didn't know anything about how to kill voles, and then we got a couple of barn cats, and that was the end of the vole problem. And hundreds of voles laid at our doorstep. I, I think right now I can hear that in your house you have a people problem, and your dog is about to solve it. Yeah. So I think it's over. Okay. I love when someone goes into the bathroom and Bella stands outside the door and barks. It's like, that is going to clinch your sphincter. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, and then and then we talked a little bit about um, uh, earlier today uh, about the idea of dogs that help keep off deer, and then we also talked about um, when you have chickens and you want to keep off predators. And so then it's like it's a very similar thing: predator pressure. If you've got a bunch of chickens, you might have the only food for several miles around for predators, and um, and and then it's like, well, you know, how do you protect them? And so then we talked about so you've got you've got Bella here, and and Bella is an I, uh, by looking at Bella I I, I can't remember you, you told me what breed she is Dutch Shepherd Dutch Shepherd breed. Yeah, I, she looks to me like 
the kind of dog that would easily keep all deer away if you left her outside, that, that she would be particularly passionate and love the idea of, I think, I think Bella would, be, would groove on eating deer. Like, you could cut back on your dog food bill a lot. Yep. Um, yeah, we, she's learned to eat roadkill and rabbits and a few things like that now. So she's, she's definitely, you know, they're different breeds. Breed is important. Breed kind of rules. You know, it's really hard to train a dog breed not to do something that's in their breed. So she's definitely got a bit of a predator in her. So she's not, she's not a good chicken guardian. But she's a very really good. She's like just a, you know. Once you figured out I didn't want the deer around, it's like that's my job. I'm gonna do that job. <laughs> I can so do yeah. that. Yeah, that would be like awesome. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> you are the coolest person in the world. And yeah. I hear the Pyrenees dogs are some of the best protectors yeah. of livestock yeah. and kids and right. the white And what do you think about um, pouring a little gasoline down into the gopher hole and? Fuck no. no, I want to override. <laughs> Fuck no. no Toby, would you uh, endorse sure. that? I was just wondering how much gasoline is the carrying oh, capacity of the land? Yeah, right. I got, I'm yeah, like, I was fighting yeah. with my dad. I'm like, yeah. I, he's like, I'm not pouring more than about a, a couple ounces down. It just fumigates them. I'm like, I'm going to pour a little gopher or inhaling fumes till they die. So Diesel's better than gasoline. Well, I think that's <laughs> No, wait. Did you just fucking say that? <laughs> Don't make me edit my podcast. <laughs> I hear it's hard you to get rid of better, papers. not great. Right, right. Yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't rule out any strategy, but definitely something that involves pouring petroleum into the ground is, is something that I'd, I'd put pretty far down on the hierarchy. How do you like to do with gophers? Go, gophers, I... I have not lived in an area with serious gopher problems. I've, I've definitely done the, uh, you know, have people plant a million daffodil bulbs in a, in a solid row and get a cat. And gen- generally, again, an animal to fix an animal problem is, is my usual recommendation. Yeah, I thought I, I thought I came up with something from the permaculture world that, and I think it was Skeeter that said something about when you have a bunch of gophers. They are there to solve another problem. Mm-hmm. Compaction so like, of the soil. You've got well, compaction of the soil would be one. Another one is that you might have like a lot of grub problems, mm-hmm. and uh, the gophers are there for that. Or you know, well, moles are there for grub. Mm-hmm. Okay, moles. All right. Yeah, because the gophers are vegetarian. Okay, so then the gophers, the gophers will be there to, to heal in some other way. And so then it's like, you know, what are what are they doing? What are they drawn to? What is the right, thing that's yeah. there that the gophers? So now I'm I'm I, I'm I come from a part of a country where we don't have gophers. We have ground squirrels. Mm-hmm. In Colorado, they have gophers. So I was like learning, oh, those those things that look like ground squirrels, those are actually gophers. So right. Uh, all right, so I'm with you now. Gophers, gophers, yeah, okay. <clears throat> but uh, they have a function. They're doing a job. They're part of nature's mm-hmm. big greater scheme, and. Um, I think one of the things is is that if you've got a, a lot of gophers, you've got a lot of moles, voles, you've got ground squirrels, you've got groundhogs, you've got uh, whatever. All those things, um, you know, those can be solved with pigs. But at the same time, it's like, do we have those kinds of problems when you have a food forest? Do we have voles, moles, gophers, groundhogs? I mean... Gophers, ground and ground squirrels—they seem to be very much in a desert country. Yeah, they like they like it drier. They're, they seem to be in places where the vegetation isn't all that thick, 
No, I, 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 it, it looks to me like when you, when you've got a an area that's just saturated with roots, there are some gophers, but not very many. It seems to me that gopher problems occur most where there's sparse vegetation, and so the gophers are coming in and eating the the food that is in fairly short supply. It's like they're drawn to the only food source that's there. Whereas if you've got a fairly lushly, you know, either well irrigated or a place with adequate rainfall, like there's, it seems like there's enough root systems there to where the gophers, you know, they're happy, they chow down on a few things, but they're not coming in, you know, nailing your fruit tree roots and that sort of thing. So gophers seem to be more of a problem where vegetation is sparser, there's not quite as much rainfall, and they definitely like soil compaction. They seem to come into old pastures, you know, a lot of people buy a farm with an old compacted pasture and start planting gardens in it, and the gophers love that. They just, you know, they like compacted soil with fresh young roots in it. And so basically, if the soil is compacted, nature is providing a solution for uncompacting it, right. and their solution, a nature solution is the gopher. Yeah. And so then when the farmer is out there like, damn gophers, or uh, what was that, Caddyshack? I want you to go out there and kill all the gophers. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, maybe the thing to do is to say that uh, – we should be embracing them. They're there to help. They're there to do a job. We we screwed up. We botched something, and and they're there to fix things. And then later, they're pig food. <laughs> whenever you stacking function, whenever you've got an animal problem like that, or whatever the problem is, it just means something's out of balance. The problem is during the abundant gopher phase, we're not very happy with it. You know, it's not really compatible with the things that we want to do um, in at least conventional gardening and farming. Seth has figured out exactly how to deal with that successionary phase and just grow things that the gophers don't want or have enough diversity in the system so that there are things that the gophers aren't going to affect. But if we're trying to grow small fruit trees and annual vegetables and young shrubs, then the gopher phase, when that coincides with that, that's going to be a problem for us. So I would I would imagine that, that Seth would do things to try and encourage gophers to encourage all those little rodents because he wants to have more, more, more because that's that's more pig food it's on the just hook. another layer to stack in, exactly. Yeah, you know, and it's it's like uh, so... So he feeds them. I would imagine that he would plant stuff that they would enjoy yeah. eating. Yeah, sure. put potatoes around for trees. Right. And then, and then it's like, how can I get my... How, how, because basically, if I can get more of them, then um, then my pigs have more protein. Yeah. And yeah. that I don't have to bring in, and he, and he doesn't bring anything in. But right. But since they're omnivores, since pigs are omnivores, then they they're not going to survive just on the plants that he plants, and so he needs to have stuff coming in that they can eat. So I would imagine that he, yeah. You know, anyway. <clears throat> right. I mean, Seth's strategy is to stack as many trophic levels in there, you know, as many different parts of the food chain in as he can and just get them all cranking and then wait until the system kind of stabilizes itself and then play with it. Did you been doing that long enough to have that figured out. Did you watch my video about the blackberries? No, I haven't seen your blackberry video. So it's just it's just like not even a minute long. 
and I'm just... Well, that's my intention. I'm not aware. <laughs> so all it is is where I'm conveying a story of, um, of, of Seth. The first time I ever met Seth, there was a little Q&A, and uh, there's like, I don't know, 60 people in the, in the audience, and somebody asked the question, what do you do about blackberries? And so Seth says, you put a strand of electric around it and run pigs in there. And then the next person said, well, I'm a vegan, and I'm not going to raise pigs, so what do I do? And Sepp says, then you must do the pig's work. Next question. There's no such thing as a complete ecosystem has animals in it. And just You don't have to eat them, you know, but you're, you're removing a huge, the entire regulatory function of animals is just enormous. You know, that's kind of their job. Does the plants produce stuff, and the animals determine where it grows and determines how fast it propagates and moves nutrients around. And if you remove that animal layer, you've lost all that information. You've lost all of those flows, and you have to make it all up yourself. Are you familiar with uh, Alan Savory's work? Sure, yep. Holistic resource management and that. Right. Holistic management, whatever you want to call it. Holistic range management. It keeps changing the name. (laughs) Well, it's a paddock shift system. Right. Big part of it. Large ruminants. And you move them around, kind of like how the bison moved around, because the bison <clears throat> would be in, 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 uh, in great big herds because they would be safest that way. Mm-hmm. And then they would just keep moving and moving and moving. Right. And then Imagine how the herds move and duplicating that. Exactly. And uh, the predators would keep them bunched up like that. Yeah. It's, I mean, the craziness is when you have a bunch of cattle inside a big fence with no predators around them, they just wander around. Isolated, compacting the soil, eating the stuff they want to eat, leaving the stuff they don't like. That's not how bison and cattle work. Bella, take it easy. Okay. I want to pause this. Very awesome. Rather, no, let's get rid of this. Let's kill it. Let's stop that cycle from happening. Let's absorb that cycle. What about rabbits? What, what is the? Is, I mean, rabbits is going to be pretty much the same. I mean, they'll go for some greener, lusher space, but they'll still burrow and yeah. open stuff up. If we got rabbit problems here, and you know, since Bella can't run around in the garden, and there's not much she could do about it, she'd she'd be great sleeping out there. She just, you know, I'd have rabbits every couple of days for dinner if, if she could handle that. Yeah, same same thing though. I mean, a, you know, a good a good predator for rabbits would be what you'd want because you know they're they're a pain i mean you got to bury a fence two feet in the ground to keep rabbits out and and it's got to be a small mesh fence and you you have to work hard so i advocate against people burying fence Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons and it's like if you're thinking about you need to bury fence i think you're doing it wrong i I think that there's a different solution yeah the the keep it out solution is just It's a lot of work. I mean, you're trying to tightly manage an area. You could do it in a little tiny zone one, you know, maybe, but, right, I mean, there are a lot of things in the ground that you want coming in, and so a a buried fence is going to keep out, you know, things that that actually would be nice to have coming in. You're creating an edge or a barrier where it's not that good an idea. So, ideally, you would have some other way of keeping keeping the stuff out that you that you don't want to come in there, you know, which is why I like animals, but, you know, predators to do that function. 
Well, here we are in Montana. We've got the, our great big gathering of a bunch of permaculture geeks, geeks that, to come and keep Toby company for uh, a weekend that he was going to be back in it. So uh, I think that's our function is keep him from getting bored. That's right. Uh, Please help me. It's here. And now the, the, now the Missoula contingent's already here. I think the Bozeman contingent has just arrived. Yeah. yeah and so uh, we're going to have to, like, uh, wrap up this podcast. But I, I uh, Toby, I, I made the I, – I, I, uh, I promised something about you that maybe you won't be comfortable with and I said that uh, if somebody on Permies has a question that uh, they can post it and we'll try and see if we can answer it and and if they still feel like no I want Toby to come in and do this <laughs> then I said I'll put a cap on it of once a month so once a month will you come once a month can, can you handle that As I, I said it would have to be run through me mm-hmm. and and so it's like we'll, we'll try to limit the amount of time people bug you about stuff but oh God he's got me on the air wanting me to promise something. <laughs> will you commit, Toby? Will you commit? Me and you, forever, once a month. Toby, show your love. Right. Go go ahead and ask when they come up. Send me the send me the batch and I'll see if I can get some. Okay, that's that's no problem. And then when they when you say if you don't want to do it, I'll say Toby said to piss off. Right. Exactly. You Toby suck. Hate you. <laughs> you said your questions are stupid. <laughs> Yeah. He like you. <laughs> he said he was gonna, but then he saw your name. <laughs> I said, oh, it's you. Oh. I remember you. Oh, All right. So I do think that the forums are... Um, the place where we're going to all collectively grow in the permaculture world and innovate and build a better world. And so participation in the forums is just, you know, an important thing for all of us. Uh, so uh, please, uh, if you're listening to this, I'm needing you to go out there, answer some newbie questions, and ask some awesome questions for the advanced folks. Let's, let's move forward in the world of permaculture. Um, anything to add, Caleb? Thanks, guys. All right, rock on. Yeah. It's fun. Remember, bringing an animal to solve an animal problem, <laughs> even if you're the animal problem. <laughs> <laughs>